This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is September 24th, 2020. And as the campaigns for president, Congress, and state and local offices in the United States head into the final stretch, we're talking with Chad Meyerhofer about a study he co-authored titled, Do Elections Make You Sick? Dr. Meyerhofer holds the Arthur F. Searing Professorship in Economics in Lehigh's College of Business. His research focuses broadly on the economics of health and nutrition. Much of his work involves the use of microeconometric methods to evaluate and inform public policy. Dr. Meyerhofer is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, which published the election study online. Welcome, Dr. Meyerhofer. Let's start with a spoiler alert. What were the main takeaways from your study on the effects that elections in Taiwan had on the physical health of voters there? Do elections make you sick? Hi, Jack. It's great to talk to you. Uh, Yes, elections do indeed make you sick. And in fact, we found that uh, healthcare costs increased during the campaign periods associated with elections. That increase was relatively large. So healthcare expenditures in Taiwan increased 19% during those legally mandated campaign periods. And if you extrapolate that result to the entire population and look at how large that number is, is a, is a fraction of total healthcare costs, it was 2% during the election period. The other thing we found was that the amount of money spent on treating illnesses from the election was actually higher than the amount of money that was spent by presidential candidates on their campaigns. All right, and what were the main health issues that were being treated as a result of the elections? So we found that election campaigns increased the incidence of acute respiratory infections, gastrointestinal diseases, and injuries. Interestingly, we didn't find any effects on mental health conditions, despite the fact that previous studies uh, suggest that depressive symptoms and anxiety increased during the elections. And I'm wondering, uh, your study is the first to look at the healthcare costs of elections. And most of us grew up believing that free and fair elections are one of the cornerstones of our system of government uh, in the United States. So what led you to ask the question whether elections make us sick in the first place? Well, we were interested in how, how the healthcare consequences of elections may be different now compared to in the past. And one of the things that's really changed over time is how acrimonious political debate has become. So in the past, you know, it seemed there, even though there was a two-party system in Taiwan and a two-party system in the United States, there were, there was less negative campaigning. There was less um, bifurcation of um, views on, on as many issues. And there wasn't the intensity of campaigning that we see today. So we, we wondered whether this higher intensity of campaigning, um, you know, what seemed to be like higher stakes elections where social policies could shift more abruptly depending on who was elected, uh, whether that would have any effect on healthcare. 
healthcare utilization, because there have been some anecdotal studies that found that in more recent periods, stress levels of voters have become much higher. Now, why look at Taiwan as opposed to, say, the, the United States? So my co-author on this study is Hung Hao Chang, and we've worked together for a number of years looking at issues in Taiwan. So there's a couple reasons why Taiwan is a good case study to look at this issue. Uh, the first is that they have a two-party system just like the United States, and the parties are fairly entrenched in their policy positions, again, like the United States. And the, the intensity of campaigning there is very, is very high. So um, they, the, the island has been termed the island of elections because when the elections happen, it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, it's a soap opera that you could watch on television. And in fact, there's some people that follow elections in Taiwan very closely because they're so dramatic and interesting. Um, the other reason why we chose Taiwan is that we have, through my co-author, access to administrative healthcare claims data covering the entire population, which is something that, you know, doesn't exist in the United States um, because of the private insurance system. And so that's a very big asset from a methodological standpoint, uh, because it means that we don't have to worry about people having different access to healthcare like they would in the United States where, you know, people who had better access to healthcare, maybe they had like lower incidence of illness or something like that. In Taiwan, there's a national health insurance system. Everybody has access to care and we know exactly how much is spent to treat everybody's conditions. Now you used uh, what's known as a regression discontinuity design to conduct the study. Can you briefly break that down for us? Tell us what it means, how it works? Sure. So the, the difficulty with any study is trying to identify whether the effect you're interested in is causal or it's just a correlation. So you need uh, some sort of natural experiment in order to identify a causal relationship between elections and health. So we use this regression discontinuity design and what it is, is it exploits the fact that as people get older, their healthcare expenditures increase with age. So you can think about there being like this nice, smooth, tr increasing trend in healthcare costs as, as, as individuals age. So if you isolate um, the period just around the election um, and you look at individuals who are eligible to vote as opposed to those who are not eligible to vote, the election can cause a sharp increase in expenditures among those who are voter eligible. And that's because, you know, campaign events are targeted towards those voters. So what we did is we looked, so the voting age, the legal voting age in Taiwan is, is 20 years old. So we essentially looked at the trend in healthcare expenditures um, for individuals less than 20, just less than 20, and those that are had just turned 20 and looked at how much healthcare expenditures jumped up during the election for those eligible voters. And the reason why we can do it this way is that there are no other events in there's no there are no other um, phenomena in Taiwan that occur at age 20. So for example, um, the legal age for smoking and drinking is younger 
students enter either university or mi military service at a different age. And so there's nothing to sort of confound that um, relationship between medical expenditures and age. Okay. Now you looked at uh, two national presidential elections uh, in 2008 and 2012, and two local township mayoral elections in 2005 and 2009. I'm wondering why look at both national and local elections, and did the results that you saw differ between the two kinds of campaigns? Uh, there are three reasons why we looked at both presidential and local mayoral elections. The first reason was that we expected there to be a bigger effect on healthcare use during presidential elections. And that's because there's a lot more at stake. The, you know, the, the federal government, the national government turns over when uh, there's a new, a new president elected. And those campaigns tended to be, you know, they tend to involve more people, whereas, uh, you know, mayoral elections, they don't always occur at the same time. They're, they're, um, they're focused on certain areas. So, you know, one way of testing whether our model was working properly and we were actually capturing, you know, the effect of the elections was to see whether um, there was a bigger effect on healthcare use as a result of presidential elections. And, and in fact, there was. So healthcare costs increased about three times as much during presidential campaign periods than uh, local campaign periods. The second reason that we looked at both types of elections was there's a difference in the length of the campaign period. So one of the really interesting things we found in our study was that there was no increase in healthcare use just before the campaign periods were allowed to start and there was no increase in healthcare use immediately after the election. And that's actually contrary to some previous studies which found that um, effects on stress and anxiety would, were, were high after the election as well as you know, before. So the, um, the, Taiwan is different in the, than the United States in the sense that they actually have um, legal limits on the length of their campaign period. And the campaign periods are relatively short, which is one of the reasons why they're so intense. So a presidential campaign period is four weeks long and a local mayoral campaign is only one week long. And so that allowed us to test whether we found effects on health outside the campaign, these different length you know, campaign periods. And in fact, we didn't. We only found healthcare effects during the weeks of those legally mandated campaigns. Hmm. Now, the last reason why we looked at both um, types of elections was that we were able to obtain data on campaign spending for local elections. For presidential elections, it's hard to use that data because you know the presidential candidates they only report um, campaign expenditures for the entire country, so you don't know where the spending was higher, like in what regions of the country. Whereas in the mayoral elections, um, you do know that. So we were able to look at that information and, and identify that that uh, healthcare costs were higher in campaigns where spending was greater and also verify that when there were no mayoral elections in certain areas, 
that there was there was essentially no effect on healthcare utilization, even though there were elections during the same period in other parts of the country. So to look whether you know there's any sort of spillover effects that occur across uh, different regions. Okay, a couple of follow-up questions then, um, and you know you can talk a, a little bit about uh, how we translate the findings from Taiwan to United States campaigns. But, you know, as, as we're all painfully aware, the presidential campaigns in the U.S. are basically never ending now. Um, you know, as soon as somebody's elected, the next cycle starts. Uh, I'm wondering, would there be benefits to a shorter campaign season uh, in the United States? Yeah that's, a yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, it's not, it's not fully clear whether having a shorter campaign would be better or worse, but we do know that, you know, what we, what I think we did learn is the characteristics of the campaigns are very important. So, you know, the intensity, the fact that the campaigns are so short in Taiwan could possibly increase the intensity of campaigning, which, which might make, you know, might increase the probability of, of getting sick. If you, if you lengthened out campaigns, then it might decrease that intensity and therefore you know, reduce healthcare costs. However, at the same time, we also learned that exposure to illness was, was really important. So you know, the fact that we find that you know, acute respiratory infections and gastrointestinal diseases were the, the you know, the, the types of healthcare expenditures that increased suggests that, you know, a lot of the negative effects of campaigning are through these rallies where people are packed in and very close quarters. They're, you know, they're very impassioned and, you know, they're screaming loudly. They're spreading a lot of germs around them because they're, <laughs> they're, um, they're excited. They're talking loudly. They're speaking loudly. They're cheering. And you know they're they're next you know they're in close contact with other people. Um, also, like the you know the these campaign events tend to be very long in duration. People are not eating; they're away from home. They're not eating the same type of food that they eat at home. They you know they're they can you know there can be a lot of stress that's associated with um, what happens in the campaign rallies, if it makes people worried about what's going to happen in the future, if that candidate's not elected, which could also lead to, uh, gastrointestinal illness. And so, you know, these things at the same, if you have a longer campaign period and you have more of these events, you know, that could be bad. That could increase healthcare expenditures more over a longer period than having a shorter period. But at the same time, during a longer period, if you're, if you're increasing, you know, if you're decreasing the intensity of those events, then that, that could be good. So I think that, you know, I think it's really more correlated with how many of these events are happening, how much is spent on campaigns. So, you know, the fact that we find that healthcare costs are higher when there's more spending is, is important for the US because in the United States, we spend a lot of money on campaigns, there's huge, you know, millions and millions of dollars spent on presidential and um, congressional campaigns. So, it's more about that, I think, than than it is the um, the, length. Uh, the length per se. Yeah. 
Well, let me ask you, and we should note that the study that you did um, was conducted before the global COVID-19 pandemic created this whole new set of uh, significant health risks linked to elections, you know, just going to polling places, um, you, po- you know, the health of poll watchers, uh, the difficulty in getting people to volunteer as poll watchers now. Um, but you talked about the large, intensely impassioned rallies in Taiwan. And uh, clearly we've seen, you know, that phenomenon in the U.S. as well as, as one of the cornerstones of President Trump's first campaign and continuing now during the pandemic. Um, should the results of your study give us concern about those rallies? I mean, I think that our results do suggest that there could be some negative consequences to rallies like that. And, you know, there's two reasons for that. Um, One is, of course, when people, you know, during the COVID-19 era here, uh, we're obviously very concerned about the spread of the illness through respiratory droplets. And if people are, you know, at a rally where they're standing very close to other people and they're cheering and they're shouting, you know, they're going to be, they're, go- they're going to be putting out like a higher number of those respiratory droplets and um, increasing the risk of transmission of any virus, uh, including COVID. And, you know, so that, that, is, a, that is a concern. Uh, the fact that people are not wearing masks at some of these rallies increases the likelihood, you know, that there'll be a transmission. So really this is the first study, you know, even though, you know, I I should caveat this in that we didn't, our data are not, you know, specific to individual rallies. So we we weren't able to measure healthcare costs due to specific rallies. We, We just measure healthcare costs over like this four week campaign period. But we know in Taiwan that one of the, you know, main features of campaigning is are these rallies. And the fact that we find these respiratory infections really suggests that that's where transmission is occurring. So, you know, this is really the first study to prove that um, that those types of rallies uh, do cause higher transmission of respiratory infections. So that, you know, that should give people who attend them pause that, you know, yes, the, the likelihood of getting a virus like COVID-19 is a lot higher, you know, at a rally like that than it would be otherwise. So that's one, re, you know, one, one important uh, concern. And I think the other factor that we find is, you know, interestingly, if you look at all the, many of the um, previous studies on, on this topic. They're really focused on stress and mental health. Right. And they, um, they show that people report psychological distress because of the election, that they report um, you know, depression, depressive symptoms, and you know, they even measure people's biomarkers. So their cortisol, cortisol levels or testosterone levels, they find like elevated levels of uh, cortisol and decreases in testosterone. And these can be associated with depressive symptoms and psychological distress. And so the, they're really focused on mental health aspects. So it's interesting that we don't, we don't find any increases in mental, mental health uh, conditions in our data. But you know, that doesn't mean that this stress that people are feeling doesn't contribute to their physical illness because stress can, um, 
stress can, you know, weaken essentially increase fatigue and it can weaken immunity and that makes you more susceptible to respiratory infections like, like COVID-19. Um, so if these campaign rallies are increasing people's stress levels, then that could also be bad, you know, so we don't, we don't know much about this, but, you know, you, you know, it, it, obviously like we've all had this feeling that when we, you know, we go to, uh, our favorite media outlet and we read about the campaign nowadays, it does get us worked up. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a stress response. And our heart rate increases, we have physical symptoms from that. And so if it's the case that those, those, that stress level and those physical symptoms are, are higher at rallies, then that, you know, that could certainly be bad for the health of attendees. Now, one of the other things you mentioned was a link between high levels of campaign spending and greater health care costs, which is interesting. Um, and, and wondering um, if you could talk a little more about that. And one of the things I'm wondering is, does, you know, we're in that season where it's just nonstop political commercials, every channel, all day, all night. And is there any indication that the constant barrage of campaign advertising, for example, plays a role in making us sick. Yeah, so, you know, in the study, we, did, you know, we weren't able to differentiate types of campaign expenditures, you know, they're, whether they're right. media ads or whether they're um, expenditures on events. However, you know, the, the evidence we're getting from the study does suggest that that constant barrage could be bad for our health, um, especially as you know, the media ads that we see nowadays tend to be more negative in nature. And there's been, of course, a lot of discussion in the press about um, the, the, the transition towards negative campaigning and how it's actually more effective, you know, which is one of the reasons why we see it, see it more often. Um, right. And, you know, and the question is, like, how does that make us feel? What kind of response do, does that invoke in a person's um, mind and, 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 and are there any physical symptoms from that? And so I think that, you know, my own view of, of it is that those negative media campaign ads, they're, they're a constant reminder, you know, they're sort of meant to play on our fears and they're a constant reminder that the election is a high stakes event where if things don't, if our preferred candidate is not elected, that it could, it could have negative consequences for us personally, and that increases anxiety and stress. And that can make you, again, more susceptible to physical illness. So I, I do think that um, our study sort of uncovers a tangible cost of that type of campaigning. Uh, you know, previously, like we think, oh, you know, that's unpleasant, but, you know, it wasn't clear whether that unpleasantness translated into any real cost. And now we know that it does. Um, and this also, you know, this also links to the literature on the effectiveness of advertising and political right. spending and campaigns. And so some previous studies have shown that, you know, a lot of campaign spending is, you know, it's socially wasteful because it doesn't actually have a big impact on the outcome of the election. And that's, that's particularly true of incumbents uh, candidates spending on, you know, to, to reelect them. 
and you know it's almost like an arms race so if every you know if both candidates have the same level of spending it's sort of you know potentially the effects cancel each other out is one way of thinking about it um, so if that's the case, you know, there's, if there's no real benefit to this type of spending yet, there are costs, both in terms of just the cost of paying for those ads where that, you know, that money could have been spent on other, other things, and also this, this healthcare cost, then, you know, it, it suggests that we may want to think about whether limiting spending is, is, a, is a good thing to do. Now I'm wondering, as you talk about the the healthcare costs and the costs on stress and anxiety, did you find any implications for public health in the U.S. Uh, as a result of the study? I think we did. So, you know, one of the things we found in Taiwan was that healthcare costs and due to the election were higher among a group of individuals that had the most to lose in the campaign. Uh, so in the, in the case of Taiwan, there's two dominant political parties. You can think about them as like a white collar par, uh, party and a, a blue collar party. And in the elections that we studied, that white collar party won the elections. And so um, the, you know, the, the losers of the elections and the, the, you know, the group that was sort of vying to um, overturn the current government was blue collar, was their supporters were tended to be blue collar individuals. And so we found, you know, the healthcare expenditures were highest among men, you know, who were middle to lower income. And, you know, those so that, you know, it suggests that the, you know, the efforts to sort of propel their candidate to victory and their engagement in the campaign was higher. They also had the most to lose in the campaign if their, if their candidate didn't win and they, their candidate wasn't projected to win because the candidate was not the incumbent. So their stress may have been, you know, higher, their, their activity, their engagement in campaigning higher. So what we would, you know, what that would suggest in the United States is that the group that is um, most engaged in campaigning that has the most to lose is probably the group that's going to be most affected, you know, from a health standpoint from the campaigns, which in the U.S. is, you know, is minorities, uh, low-income individuals uh, who, are, who are minorities are, is, the, is what we find. And there's also anecdotal studies, you know, after the 2016 election that show that women and women who were minorities in minority categories were um, experienced the most you know, negative uh, physical and mental health symptoms from, from that campaign event. You know, so it does suggest that public health authorities could uh, try to target resources to, towards those, um, those groups that are most at risk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it also suggests that, again, coming back to the campaign spending aspect of things, that, um, you know, if one traditional solution in economics, if they're, you know, to deal with like negative externalities from, from activities is to tax those activities. So in the United States, there's no tax on, you know, private contributions to political campaigns. So it's, you know, you could think about in, in imposing a tax on those contributions to reduce the level and sort of limit, you know, the arms race that we see. Uh, because, you know, it's, 
there's sort of something interesting uh, about political campaigning, which is that all that matters, you know, you can think about, think about like political spending as being a zero sum game that it, like the candidate who has the higher spending gets a benefit over the candidate with the lower spending. So, you know, if that spending, if those spending levels are really, really high, you know, the candidate um, with the higher spending gets, gets the benefit. But if those spending levels are really low, the candidate with the higher spending still gets the same benefit. You know, so, the, so you could essentially just reduce the level of spending, you know, proportionally and nothing would change. You know, the, the candidate with the higher spending would still do as, you know, get the same advantage. So that's, you know, that, that's why, you know, this spending is, is wasteful. And, and if we could take that money and we could do something more beneficial with it, you know, like invest in infrastructure, for example, or invest in the healthcare system, then that would make everybody better off. And so, you know, redistributing funds through, through a tax is one way to do that. One final question then to, to wrap up here, and that's given the toll that elections take on our health, are they worth it? Oh, absolutely. So elections, like if you look more broadly, of course, at authoritarian societies and democratic societies, there's no question that um, the overall health of the population is, is much better in democratic societies than in authoritarian regimes. So, you know, overall elections are definitely worth it. It's not a matter of um, there being, you know, so there's sort of this this sort of balance that you have to you know that you want to achieve with uh, democratic elections you know because candidates are competing that's going to cause you, you know people to engage and um, it's going to it's going to cause a discourse between opposing groups and so that discourse is good because it allows society to, you know, it allows the information about what's going on in the government and the implications to spread. And we want more people to be informed about policies and, and things. So that's good. And it allows, you know, you know, different opposing views, you know, people to learn about their, you know, what, you know, the, the opposing views of others. And that's good too. And so a society can kind of, kind of like hash out its problems through these elections. So we do want those benefits, you know, from, from elections and from campaigning. But at the same time, we don't want the social discourse to rise to a really high level. So, of course, the extreme case is that um, there's so much conflict that's generated from elections that you get violence. And that which and that, of course, is tremendously damaging. And, you know, so as a society, I think we have to look at, you know, where we are on that continuum, you know, have things riven, risen to a level that, you know, that we're, in addition to getting the benefits of the discourse, we're also now, you know, getting some negative effects because the campaigns are so negative and, you know, groups are, you know, the, the debate is so acrimonious that it's actually leading to, you know, social strife or to, you know, negative feelings and stress. So, you know, it's, I think it's not so much about the elections and the democratic process, it's about the campaigning and how the campaigning is done. And our study, I think, suggests that, you know, in the United States, uh, anyway, and, pro and in Taiwan, 
that the intensity of campaigns and the conflict that results from them is getting to the point where um, there are some negative health consequences and higher health care costs as a result. Dr. Meyerhofer, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been fascinating and, and certainly have given us a lot to think about as we uh, sit through the barrage of campaign advertising and the, the upcoming debates and the rest of the campaign. Thanks, Jack. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again thank my guest, Chad Meyerhofer. His study, Do Elections Make You Sick?, is available on the National Bureau of Economic Research website at nber.org slash papers slash W26697. You'll find a link to the study in the accompanying blog post. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh Business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Lehigh Business. Thanks for listening.